0: So, do you remember what happened last week? So, Nehemiah had been gone for just a short time, and he heard that things weren't going so well in Jerusalem, so he went back, and you remember the the high priest was renting out uh, the storage rooms and the temple, and all sorts of bad things were happening, and so he had to go in and clean house again and ask forgiveness from God again. And so that isn't the end of it though, because there were more things to clean up. And so before we get into God's word, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time to come together and to uh, teach your word. Father, I have Uh, No right to even be up here presenting your word. But because you love us, Lord, you use uh, everyone for your purposes. And I am so thankful. And I would ask that you just uh, fill me now as we go through this word so that I can uh, speak the words that you want me to speak, Lord. So we give you this time. ask that you bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are going to pick up in Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 15. We're going to beginning with verse 15. And it says, in those days, I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. Why? Why would Nehemiah rebuke them and be so angry with them? Well, in order to understand that, we have to look at the law of Moses. And in Exodus chapter 35, verses 1 through 3, I'm going to read that. You're welcome to follow along. It says, then Moses called together the whole community of Israel and told them, these are the instructions the Lord has commanded you to follow. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day must be a Sabbath day of complete rest, a holy day dedicated to the Lord. Anyone who works on that day must be put to death. You must not even light a fire in any of your homes on that Sabbath. So that's pretty extreme. If you break the Sabbath, you get put to death. But you know what? These are God's rules and he has a purpose for everything he does. So this was read to the people in Nehemiah chapter eight. And that is when they found out that they had been transgressing the law of the Lord and they made a promise to God to never, ever, ever do it again. And so we are going to address two of these promises that they seem to be struggling with. And the first one is found in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31. Let's see what they promise. Nehemiah 10:31. We also promise that if the people of the land should bring any merchandise or grain to be sold on the Sabbath or on any other holy day, we will refuse to buy it. They promise this. Now, mind you, it's probably about 12, 13, 14 years after they had made this promise, so perhaps they had forgotten. But you know, when you make a promise, a solemn oath before God, you'd better remember it, amen? So anyway, after promising God that they would never transgress the Sabbath again, we find them doing that very thing. So no wonder Nehemiah is a little bit upset and mad at them. And Nehemiah was only go- gone a short time And they were back to their old tricks. Then, verse 16 tells us some men from Tyre, who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem at that. And so uh, from what it says here, we can probably assume that they were pagans. They were from a town called Tyre, which is in southern Lebanon. And they were known for their pagan practices there also. But now they lived in Jerusalem, about 104 miles away, and they were trying to make a so to speak and so they brought in fish which means that either came from the Mediterranean Sea which was 45 miles away or the Sea of Galilee which was like a hundred miles away. Now mind you they didn't have refrigerator trucks and so the minute it got there they wanted to sell it which is reasonable but you know what God's law is God's law and he says not to do that on the the Sabbath day and he uh didn't want them to sell or trade anything on the Sabbath. That was a day for rest only. So verse 17 tells us, So I confronted the nobles of Judah. Why are you profaning the Sabbath in this evil way, I asked. And so I can just imagine the nobles looking really guilty and just saying, well, I don't know. It kind of seemed like a good idea at the time. And it reminds me of all the stories that Jeff would come home and tell us with regards to life at camp, high school camp, junior high camps. And for some reason, it always seemed to be the boys that got into the most trouble because you know we're so sweet and innocent, we never got into trouble. But anyway, a lot of the boys, they were always doing really silly things. And he told the story about this one kid that on a dare decided to jump off the roof of one of the dorms in the winter into a 12-foot snowbank. And what he did is he just jumped straight in and went like a pencil all the way down. And he was stuck. (laughs) And the really funny thing is he was in his underwear. So he asked them, what were you thinking, jumping into a snowbank in your underwear? It's like 20 degrees outside. And what do they say? Well, I don't know, seemed like a good idea at the time. So, you know, we all do those kind of things. You know, sometimes we don't think before we do things silly. So anyway, Nehemiah goes on to tell them, wasn't it this sort of thing that your ancestors did that caused our God to bring all this trouble upon us? and our city. Now you are bringing even more wrath upon Israel by permitting the Sabbath to be desecrated in this way. So what was Nehemiah talking about? And so we need a brief history lesson here on what happened to the Israelites. Now you remember they were rescued from life in Egypt. They were slaves there. They had to build bricks. They had to build the pyramids, that kind of thing. God rescued them. They went into the desert. They had to wander around for 40 40 years that's much longer than 40 days, but forty years because they kept being disobedient. And then God gave them the land of promise. And the king, uh, excuse me, the, the kingdom was united under the rule of King David, followed by his son Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. And the rulers of the kingdom from that point on were for the most part pretty evil. If you go through the book of 2 Kings, you will find that oftentimes the chapter begins with, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Whenever a new king would come, they said, well, every once in a while, he was a good king, but most of the time you'll read, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And whenever the ruler is evil, guess what? The people follow suit. So because they were so disappointed, Obedient, and they were following after pagan gods and following other pagan practices, even uh, uh, sacrificing people, their children, all this kind of thing. They were doing all sorts of despicable things. God decided to let them fall into captivity, and first they were conquered by the Assyrians, then they were conquered by the Babylonians and then after that they were conquered by the Romans all because they were being disobedient. God said obey him and you will be blessed. Disobey me and my blessing will be lifted from you and so in Exodus 19:3 through 6 it really gives a great description of what happened and it says then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. Now, what were those instructions? He's talking about the 10 commandments here. It says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure." They were going to be God's special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth for all the earth belongs to me and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation, and this is the message you must give to the people of Israel. All they had to do was obey God and this promise was theirs. A simple thing. But they couldn't do that. They wanted to follow after pagan practices, false gods. They wanted to instead be disobedient. And so Nehemiah had to have feared for the people that he had sacrificed so much for. Now they're falling back into their old ways. And that is why they, were, they, they became slaves. That's why uh, they were still in captivity and now they are risking God's wrath once again. And Nehemiah quickly rectified the situation. In verse 19, it says Then I commanded that the gates of Jerusalem should be shut as darkness fell every Friday evening. That is when the Sabbath begins at dusk on Friday night, not to be opened until the Sabbath ended, which was for us Saturday at dusk. So for 24 hours, they were supposed to rest. And he says, I sent some of my own servants to guard the gates so that no merchandise could be bought, excuse me, brought in on the Sabbath day. So he had to use his own servants because he didn't trust anybody else because they had been Uh, getting into all sorts of trouble and disobeying. So he had to use his own servants. So verse 20 says, The merchants and tradesmen with a variety of wares camped outside Jerusalem once or twice. So now I imagine you've got all these uh, merchants with their, their merchandise, their wares, their fish, and they couldn't go into Jerusalem, so they decided to set up their swap meet outside of Jerusalem, thinking that would be okay. Well, no, when God says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, that means in all of Israel, not just inside Jerusalem he says in verse 21, but I spoke sharply to them and said, what are you doing out here camping around the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And that was the last time they came on the Sabbath. They were beginning to see that this guy, Nehemiah, wasn't to be messed with. And so just because it was outside of Jerusalem doesn't mean it was outside of the law. So, I mean, maybe they figured that Nehemiah couldn't see them if they were outside of the wall setting up their swap meets. I don't know. But, you know, sinful people do silly things. So, verse 22 then says, I commanded the Levites to purify themselves, to guard the gates in order to preserve the holiness of the Sabbath. Remember this good deed also, my God have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. So once again, we see poor Nehemiah having to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people. He says, remember, they're now obeying. Don't punish them, God. And Nehemiah knew that if the, the people continued to sin, that God would have no choice but to live lift his blessing off of them once again and they would bring more heartache and abuse from uh, their captivities. So verse 23 goes on to say, about that time I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. So can you imagine how Nehemiah must feel at this time? He just took care of that problem. And here comes another one. It always seems that way, doesn't it? Just when you take care of one problem, it seems like there's always one waiting in the wings. And this is what is happening to Nehemiah. So he found out that the people had defiled the temple. They did not keep the Sabbath. They weren't taking care of the Levite priest. And now they were marrying pagans again. This was another promise that they said they would keep. In Nehemiah 10.30, it says, We promise not to let our daughters marry the pagan people of the land and not let our sons marry their daughters. They promised, and now they have broken that promise. Then 24 says, Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. So that's like adding insult to Israel, uh, 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 excuse me, insult to injury. And uh, the fact that they weren't even teaching their children the language of the Hebrews is so sad because that means that they couldn't read God's word, they wouldn't understand God's word when it was read, all these kind of things they're doing. And God said, don't do it. They had completely abandoned their roots so to speak, and then verse twenty-five goes on to say, "So I confronted them, called down curses on them, I beat some of them, and pulled out their hair." I mean, it sounds kind of like a cat fight, doesn't it? Says, so, <laughs> "I have a cat in this, this. I've seen her do this, and I made them swear." in the name of God, that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. So I have to clarify. I I read several commentaries on this, and when he said, I beat them, that means he flogged them. That was a practice. When you did something bad, you had to punish them before the people. Otherwise, they would think that this is not a big deal, according to God. So he had them flogged, and then he pulled out the hair. In other words, they... They shamed them by having their hair cut very short or even shaved off. And so that was a sign of great uh, dishonor when that happened. And then he made them swear once again that they would never, ever do it again. But why such a reaction? Why was this such a big deal? Verse 26 tells us, wasn't this exactly what King Solomon of Israel... Excuse me, that led King Solomon of Israel into sin, I demanded. There was no king from any nation that could compare to him. And God loved him and made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. So you might be saying to yourself, well, I thought Solomon was supposed to be like this really wise guy. He was supposed to be the wisest person ever in history. He was. God gave him the gift of wisdom. However, towards his old age, he began to falter quite a bit, and he made a lot of mistakes. And if you want to follow along in 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it tells us the story. Listen to this. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. I don't think he was loving them, but that's uh, a story for another time. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. I know, right? It's like, how? But anyway, and in in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. So in Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God and his father David had been. So Solomon worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And in this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine for Shemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Can you get the picture here? They're detestable to God. So Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. Now, mind you, these are human sacrifices oftentimes. The Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. So now the Lord said to him, Since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father, David, I will not do this while you are still alive. I will take the kingdom away from your son. See, that's what happened to Solomon when he began to marry pagan women. There's a lesson for us that we will uh, go into later. So Nehemiah is reminding them that even King Solomon had trouble in this. And look what happened to King Solomon. I mean, he lost every, his sons lost everything. It was his downfall and the downfall of Israel as a nation. And then verse 27 and 8 tells us, how could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully unfaithfully towards God by marrying foreign women? So if you ever had... A child that kept doing the same bad thing over and over again you can relate to this you can understand Nehemiah's pain and I'm kind of reminded of something that my mom said that I always did when I was little I was one of those kids that you could tell me not to do it I would do it anyway she would whack my little behind and then I'd go right back and do it again and I would do this over and over and over. She says, I would just push her buttons whichever way she could. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, <laughs> I'm a pastor's wife. Of course, I would never do anything like that. But you know what? That's human nature, isn't it? It really is. We always want to do what we're told we can't do. And the Israelites were no different. And then verse 28 tells us, one of the sons of jo- Joida son of Eliza Shib, you remember him from last week? He's the high priest who had married a, who had a daughter, excuse me, one of the sons of, of Joida, son of Eliza Shib, the high priest had married a daughter of Sanballat. You remember him? He's the guy that was renting the room in the temple the Horonite, so I banished him from my presence. I mean, he is cleaning house here, and so, Uh, this is what happens. When you compromise, you will allow all sorts of things to begin to crumble around you. That is what sin does. And so this high priest uh, not only allowed his grandson to marry a foreign woman, now he's got ties to Sanballat, and Sanballat is renting a room in the temple. Therefore, they're not storing any kind of food for the Levite priest, so the priests are having to Uh, work the fields in order to eat. I mean, do you see how everything is just snowballing here? And so that is what sin does. It just seems to start piling on top of each other. And then verse 29 tells us, remember them. He's talking about these guys that keep transgressing God, the Sam Ballots, the Tobias, those that are marrying foreign women against God's will. He says, remember them, Oh my God, for they have defiled the priesthood and the solemn vows of the priest and Levites. And so this brings up a really good point. What do we do when we do see injustice in the world? When we always seem to to find that the bad guys always win, the good guys always seem to lose. And it can get very, very frustrating for us, doesn't it? When we see those kind of injustices going on. But you know what? God sees it all. God sees it, and he is a just God, and he knows the hearts of each one of us. So this is a lesson that Nehemiah has learned. He says, remember them. In other words, he's saying, God, these guys really make me bad, and they're frustrating me, but remember them and judge them for their deeds. Just give it to God. That is what the lesson here is, is telling us. Just give it to him. He sees it all. So verse 30 says, So I purged out everything foreign and assigned tasks to the priests and Levites, making certain that each knew his work. So whenever you sin, what do you do? You purge it out. You get rid of it. You repent. You turn the other way. You're going one direction. Repenting means you turn, you about face and you go another the other direction. That is what we need to do. This is what Nehemiah is doing. It's kind of like... Uh, you know, keeping those things in your closet that you really shouldn't have, you know, that that little uh, mini skirt that you used to, to wear out partying and stuff, you know, if you still fit in it, um, <laughs> which I would not, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Sometimes we'll keep that in the corner of the closet just in case we might want to use it someday. No, 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 throw it away. Don't even give it to to the the thrift store. Just throw that thing away. Nobody needs it, right? So we need to clean out our closets. That stuff needs to go. It's part of the old life. We are a new creation. So that is part of the old life. We need to get rid of it. And this is exactly what Nehemiah was doing. He's just cleaning house. Then verse 20, excuse me, 31 says, I also made sure that the supply of wood for the altar and the first portions of the harvest were brought at the proper times. Remember this in my favor. Oh my God. Now I thought this was a really odd way of finishing up the whole book of Nehemiah. He's talking about firewood but you know Nehemiah is a very practical guy and I, I love this because I have a tendency to be very practical very pragmatic and it's like hey you know what we can't make sacrifices if we don't have lots of firewood so he's making sure they have all the firewood they need for the sacrifices and he's making sure that the sacrifices are there because the sacrifices atone for the sins of the people That's what they had to do until Jesus made that final sacrifice for us. They had to bring animals to be sacrificed. They had to bring uh, their first fruits to be laid on the altar. That all went away when Jesus made that sacrifice to, uh, uh, to finalize all sacrifices for our sins. But I do understand that request to remember this in my favor. Oh, my God. I understand that. He's going... Lord, please remember all the work that we have done. Don't I know my people are knuckleheads, but please, just remember everything that we've done. We're trying to do better. Please have mercy on us. And so thus ends the book of Nehemiah. but what can we learn from this week's lesson? I saw two really key lessons here. The first one was the importance of the Sabbath and the marrying of people outside of the faith, and we're gonna take a a quick look at them in the time remaining. So first, the Sabbath. Now, today in modern Israel, they take the Sabbath very seriously. They have all sorts of laws pertaining to the Sabbath. Now, one of my favorites favorites is the Shabbat elevator. Now, Shabbat is actually Sabbath, This is what they call it in Israel. So, if you're ever in Israel, if you're given the opportunity to come with us to Israel, we'll have to describe what this is. Now, the Shabbat elevator is an elevator that starts, or excuse me, stops at every single level in a big building. That doesn't matter if the thing is 30 stories tall, it will stop at every single level floor. Only the Shabbat elevators. They have for us Gentiles, they'll actually have a regular one where you hit the button. But on the Sabbath, you go into the Shabbat elevator. Why? Because it's work to press a button. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Okay, they said it is work to press the button. I want to go to the 13th floor. No, well, Chris, there isn't a 13th floor, is there? Okay, I want to go to the 12th floor. <laughs> and so they, no, you have to, if you're a orthodox, if you're practicing Shabbat, the Sabbath, you have to go into the Shabbat elevator and go stop at every single level. That's what it does. Weird law, isn't it? But this is what they believe God wants now. They've kind of gone overboard. They kind of, uh, forgotten the real uh, reason for the law itself. Another one is that many of the Orthodox Jews on the Sabbath at dusk on Friday, they go to hotels. They pack up their, every single Friday, mind you, they go to a hotel. They pack up their family and they let somebody else cook and clean for them. And they just kind of have family time. Now, I kind of like that, except there's a, there's a little catch here, because in the Levitical law, it has something to say about your servants taking a Sabbath day also. So if you're going to a hotel, what about the people working in the hotel? Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, it says, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for ordinary work, but The seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So no one's going to work at all. Not even your donkey can work. Okay? So they're actually transgressing the law by going to these hotels. So they don't have to work, but they're okay with allowing other people to work for them. So you see how, boy, it's like, uh, I didn't quite get that one, and I would like to ask them at one point how they feel they can get away with it. I did hear one explanation, and that is because on the Sabbath, that is when only foreigners work. And when uh, when the word of God said foreigners, they go, well, obviously they're talking about Jewish foreigners, not Foreigners like the Palestinians or the Arabs or Europeans that might be living and working in Israel. So, um, you know, they kind of twist it to to suit their their needs there. But why this whole Sabbath thing? This is actually a very interesting thing. A study came out by a guy named, uh, uh, an emergency room doctor named Matthew Sleeth. He wrote a book called Twenty Four Six a prescription for a healthier life. I like that, 24-6, not 24-7, 24-6. And in it, he states that we need to bring back the habit of taking off one day a week. This is something that Western culture has almost completely done away with, hasn't it? I mean, who actually rests all day? I mean, it doesn't matter if you do this on Saturday or Sunday. It really doesn't matter as long as you take a day off. And Sunday's actually good for us. It's the day the Lord rose from the dead. And so that's a great day for us to have church and to rest. You know, watch football games, baseball games, whatever you like to do. You know, curl up with a good book, something like that. But you need to take a day of rest. And he did a study and found that when you take at least one day off a week, you feel a lot better it gives your body the ability to recuperate and i actually saw this in action last week i wanted to paint my bedroom i started on thursday i worked thursday friday and saturday by sunday i'm exhausted you know i'm getting old and you know you know the whole back and everything and so i go, oh okay i'm just going to take a break and i rested on sunday Monday, I woke up, hey, I'm ready to paint again, you know? Of course, that was yesterday and I needed to prepare for today, but uh, can you imagine if I had not taken Sunday off, how exhausted I would have been yesterday and again, exhausted today? See, it just kind of snowballs and so we need to give ourselves a little bit of a break because he says, if you don't, you find yourself becoming anxious and depressed, and when that happens, you have uh, medical problems, you have uh, heart problems, you have high blood pressure problems, and all sorts of things that begin to happen. So they're finding out that there's actually a medical reason why we need to take one day off a week. Go figure. God knew it because he he designed us. He knew we were going to need a day off a week. So he says, I want you to do this. I want you to take one day off. And that is the day that you're going to dedicate to me. And this is a really good idea for us. Just a day of dedicating uh, to the Lord to spend time with him and your family. It is such a good idea to do. So we don't want to overdo it and say, well, I can't do anything on the Sabbath. You know, remember our story uh, that uh, Pastor Jeff was, was telling us last Sunday, this past Sunday, where the woman was healed and, on the Sabbath, and then the, the Pharisees going, oh, you can't do that. You know, you're working on the Sabbath. And, you know, I had to crack up because you do realize he's God, right? But, you know, <laughs> but, you know they didn't care. They were just concerned about the law. You know, they go, we don't want her healed on the Sabbath. It's against the Sabbath law. No, you know what? God cares about people a lot more than he cares about his laws. He really does, and he saw a need, and that's the example we need to take. Jesus is always our example, isn't he? So if we see a need, even though it's on our rest day, you know what? I think God would understand if you tend to that need, amen? So our second problem that they had... When that Nehemiah had to address when he got back was the Jews were marrying foreigners, which God specifically told them not to do. And the re- reason uh, that Nehemiah gave was the example that was given in uh, regarding Solomon. So the pagan wives had actually led Solomon away from the Lord. So how can we apply this to today? Well, let's look Second Corinthians six fourteen through seventeen. It says, do not be unequally yoked. Now what that means is back then they used to have uh, two oxen And if they were unequally yoked together, because a yoke was something that went around their neck, and two ox would pull a plow together. Now, if you put one big ox with a little ox, the big ox would be kind of dragging the little guy behind or vice versa. And so, you know, they they wouldn't work. They'd be going, you know, in, in swervy lines and things. And so they... That's how they were being described. The people were going, "Wow, I get that." When it's unequally yoked, it just doesn't go straight. It, it, it doesn't work very well. And so that's what he means. But by do not be unequally yoked together, but with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. So, just for reference Belel is a false god that was popular at the time. So, I don't think we're going to be worshipping Belel, but we have plenty of our own little gods, don't we? So, anyway, don't be mixed up with idol worship. But what does all this mean in a practical sense? What is he telling us here? Does that mean that uh, you know, we, we shouldn't marry unbelievers? You bet it does. You see, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what does someone who is an unbeliever, how can we get along with them? So practically, if you aren't married, don't be dating unsaved guys. And certainly don't be marrying them. And there is no such thing as pre-Christian men... I've heard that one. Well, you know, uh, he's like my, my soulmate, and he's just a pre-Christian. I know the Lord's going to save him. I'm going to be a great witness, and I'll make sure he's saved. No, there's no guarantee. I've heard that over and over again, and it has only brought them heartache. However, if you were, uh, I mean, if you are currently married, and now you're a believer, and your husband is not, the word of God says don't seek to be unmarried because by your countenance you might be able to be a good witness. So he says, you know, the word says to stay married to that person. So don't seek to be unmarried if your husband's an unbeliever, but don't marry him knowing he's an unbeliever. I think we know the difference. Also, it also means don't going don't go into Business with unbelievers because you have a completely different philosophy on how things should be you know today's society It's not a big deal to cheat on your taxes So what happens if you're going into business with an unbeliever who thinks it's perfectly? Okay, after all everybody does it and you're going wait a minute, you know, that's being dishonest. That's lying because now you have the Spirit of God, they do not. And so that's never a good idea to go into business with unbelievers. You're only asking for trouble. Also, don't hang out with unbelievers. You can have friends and acquaintances, but you know what, you don't, shouldn't, you shouldn't be hanging out with them doing the same things that they're doing. You're just ruining your witness and they will only bring you down. You can still show them though, how to have fun and be a believer because it is a lot more fun. I remember growing up, one of the things that kept me from giving my life to the Lord was, I never thought Christians had fun. Oh my goodness, when I gave my life to the Lord, that's when the fun began. It was wonderful. So yeah, never fall for that lie. But, um, you know, just be careful about who you hang out with, because oftentimes they will only drag you down. Interact with them, of course, because we want to show them the love of Christ. But you don't want to be going to the bars with them. You don't want to be joining in with their carousing and stuff like that. So we want to be in the world, but not of the world. Amen. So wrapping up, Nehemiah shows us so many great examples of how to serve God. I mean, we saw his prayer life. Wasn't that amazing? He was always interceding for the children of Israel. Every time they blew it, you saw him on his face before God saying, please have mercy on them. Also, we see him praying for strength. Oh, my goodness. He had to have so much strength and to, to put up with these folks. And a lot of patience also. He was a man of great patience. Even though he did, you know, beat somebody up and pull their hair. But, (laughs) But, you know, and he was also praying for a lot of guidance. He prayed for guidance. You have to have guidance. You need the Holy Spirit's guidance. That's one of his jobs. He will guide us through this life. And he was also praying for mercy for the people all the time. Be merciful, God. But his patience was to me so outstanding. I can honestly say that if I was in his place, I I don't know what I'd do. I'd be so frustrated. It's like, I'm done with these people. I'm going back to Babylon. It's a lot easier there, you know, but he interacted with them in a very uh, uh, definitive way. In other words, he would just say, hey, you guys, you're blowing it. Knock it off. And I, I like that about him. You know, he, he didn't uh, beat around the bush, so to speak. He just said, you can't do this. It's against God's word. We're gonna, you're going to bring God's judgment down upon us again. So don't do that. And then we saw the importance of God's word in Nehemiah's life. When the law of Moses was read, he said, oh, my goodness, we need to do this. And he never wavered. And what a great example for us. When we read something in the Word of God, we must not waver from that because it is the Word of God. It is truth. But the one thing that really stood out to me was his prayer life. That was amazing. And I'll leave you with Romans 8, 26 through 28. And Most of you know the second half of this, but the first half is amazing. Listen to this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. You ever feel that way? You just don't know what to pray. You are so brokenhearted that you just cry out to God. You just open up your heart and just say, here it is, God, as ugly as it is, here it is. And the Holy Spirit interprets that for the Lord, for God. It says, but the Spirit himself intercedes, there it is, for us with groanings too deep for words. And he also searches hearts. Knows what is the mind of the spirit. Because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. For we know that for those who love God all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So hold on to this truth. This is what Nehemiah was holding on to also. Depend on the Holy Spirit because the promise is there. There to get you through all the trials of this life. And nothing is too hard for God, amen? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so blessed, so thankful that you have your promises and that your Holy Spirit is there. Help us to always depend on your Holy Spirit to get us through those things, just like Nehemiah did. He depended on you. He fell on his face before you, God. What an awesome example. And help us, Lord, to, to bring him to mind and to look upon this book up occasionally so that we can be reminded whenever we need it at what faithfulness looks like, God. And so we love you, Lord. We thank you so much for this word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.